Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I'm going to start out with a an email, actually. I thought this would be an interesting question. I was wanting to poll my audience about what your thoughts were about this. So this came in from Liz in Newhall, and uh, basically she said, this looks uh, this looked interesting. I was wondering what your take was on it. And it was a link to an article that appeared in the Washington Post on February 20th, written by Don Follick, called uh, Patients to Doctors. Please don't weigh me unless it's really medically necessary. Uh, basically, an ADD advocate was in her doctor's office and saw a stack of cards saying, uh, please don't weigh me unless it's really medically necessary. Underneath that were small letters saying, if you really need my weight, please tell me why so I can give you my informed consent. Now, the phrase informed consent really perked me up because uh, you're supposed to, you, you have to give informed consent for medical treatment. And so let's talk about whether or not weighing someone constitutes uh, battery or treatment without their consent. And I think there's many things that happen in a doctor's office that happen with your tacit consent. We expect that you uh, intended us to do them. And one of them is, you know, taking your vital signs, blood pressure, temperature. I mean, God, you haven't been able to get into a medical building without having your temperature checked. So what's uh, what's up here? Well, the uh, said advocate, uh, whose name is Donovan, uh posted this on her Twitter, Danny Donovan, and she got about 26,000 people who noticed her post and commented on it or otherwise indicated that they'd read it. That's a lot of views for something like this. And as usual, this generated a polarized discussion with downright cruel comments. But beyond this, Liz got me thinking about the topic. What's at stake here? Uh, Here are some of the points that were made in the article. Some people with eating disorders say that they avoid going to the doctor because they don't want to be weighed. But I wonder if the doctor needs to weigh a person to see if they're actually overweight. I mean, isn't that generally evident through a quick visual inspection? People with eating disorders complain that being weighed makes them feel worse and that even being praised for getting back, getting the weight back up or back down to a healthy level worsens their disorder and risks a, re, uh, a relapse of their eating disorder. But as a physician, we, we vow to do no wrong, and I'm wondering if doing wrong includes wrongs by omission. Being overweight, especially if the BMI is greater than 30, is a major health risk for most of the diseases that are killing us as adults. Most doctors want that weight measurement and feel it's an important data point. A 2020 study of medical school training programs found that most programs provided little or no training at all in how to constructively address weight issues with patients. That's interesting, given the fact that I've just said it should be a priority for medical care, you'd think there might be some training about it. 
And inherent cultural bias against obesity is everywhere and baked in, including medical culture, as many studies have shown. It's improving slowly, I think, particularly uh, in the younger generation, as awareness of the toxic impact that body shaming and cultural bias has on the mental health of individuals. Doctors start out with all kinds of bias, just like any other member of society. And clearly, if we're going to stick with that, let's do no harm, we have to work a little bit more on this. So in my reply to Liz, I said, first of all, who needs to be weighed for medical reasons? Well, all pediatric visits, all pregnancy visits, all cancer visits, all age greater than 60 because we need to identify occult cancer, all shortness of breath or chest pressure or fatigue cases, uh, anyone with congestive heart failure, anyone with hypertension, all annual physicals. So asking us to differentiate between whether the visit is for that versus whether the visit is for a, let's say, a sore throat or an earache, something where debatably the weight's not necessary, is extra work. And hey, we're awfully busy in healthcare right now. And and even taking a few minutes to explain, while it's medically necessary to some uh, to some person uh, who's feeling fragile, is well, it's kind of a bridge too far. I think uh, I like the cards. But I think the cards should say something different, like, please do not weigh me unless it is medically necessary. Don't ask for an informed consent, because that's really pushing it and pushing a button for me. It's on the subject of is weighing someone in and of itself body shaming, even if you don't comment on the weight. It's not any more body shaming than tobacco shaming, alcohol shaming skin lesion shaming, get that ugly spot biopsied. It's really our mission as doctors to identify and point out health issues. That's our job. If you avoid going to the doctor because you don't want to be advised of your adverse health behavior, well, then maybe you deserve to suffer the consequences of that adverse health behavior. Your responsibility, not the doctors for making you feel bad about yourself. Doctors should be prepared and trained in how to offer supportive advice, coaching, in other words. We should be trained to be health coaches. And patients have the right to refuse any medical therapy or intervention, including being touched or weighed. But the way this was framed, it, I, I think, really got my, um, got my attention. And I'm interested in your opinion. Do you avoid, I'm really interested if there are people out there who avoid going to the doctor who don't have an eating disorder, but just don't want to hear it. They're tired, they're reluctant, they're ashamed maybe, uh, not saying you should be ashamed, just saying you might be. What, what are the motivations? And I'd like to hear also from other healthcare professionals. Do you think it would be onerous to have to explain to people why they're being weighed? Is that just, you know, one more thing in an already deeply impacted, overworked, and, you know, let's just say 
we've got one nerve. We woke up this morning with one nerve left and you're standing on it. Uh, cohort of individuals. Well, it's a good question. I hope that we'll hear some good answers. Evidence grows, well, for vaping's role in gum disease. Very interesting stuff. Just published in uh, a journal called M-Bio finds that e-cigarette users have a completely unique oral microbiome, different than that of smokers, different than that of non-smokers. And certain compounds actually increase the risk of gum disease over time. So this is the first longitudinal study of oral health and e-cigarette use. A longitudinal study means that you track people through time. It's not placebo. You pick out smokers, non-smokers, and the vape users, and you check them at a first point, and then you check them at a point down the line, and you look and see how things have changed over time. More than half of people over 30 years old in the United States have gum disease, and it isn't really known whether vaping is worse than smoking or the same as smoking or completely different. Turns out, kind of all of the above. They, they had 84 adults, three groups, those three groups that I've just mentioned. They had two dental exams six months apart, and plaque samples were, were taken from the plaque that was scraped off and sent for bacterial analysis. Now, all of these people had some degree of gum disease at the start of the study. And after six months, the gum disease had worsened in some but not all of the participants in each group. No surprises there. But a key indicator of gum disease is what they call clinical attachment loss. This is where the gum ligament and tissue separates from the tooth, leaving the gum to recede and forming pockets. These pockets are breeding grounds for bacteria and lead to more severe inflammation and more severe gum disease, not to mention higher risks of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease have been shown in several studies. In this study, clinical attachment got significantly worse only for the e-cigarette smokers, not the non-smokers and the cigarette smokers. And this is over just six months. They also had some interesting findings about the microbiome. All the groups shared about one-fifth of the, of the overlap in bacteria, but several groups of bacteria were abundant in smokers and vapors, but not at all in non-smokers. And several other bacteria then this gets a little scary. Fusobacterium and bacterioidetes were um, known to be associated with gum disease. These ones were particularly dominant in the mouths of e-cigarette users. It's not the t- it's not the tobacco. It's something else in the vaping product. When plaque samples were analyzed, the the, the these microbiomes were stable in the individuals over time, and. They found that that distinct microbiome in the e-cigarette users was correlated with clinical changes in gum disease and changes in the host immune environment. So drilling deeper, vapors had different levels of cytokines. These are proteins, chemicals that are chemical signals that regulate the immune system. And the cytokines that were more prevalent in the vapors were the ones that are make people more prone to inflammation and infection, particularly tumor necrosis factor alpha. This is, by the way, one of the general inf- 
inflammatory signals, a cytokine that goes to the cell, turns on something called NF-kappa-B, which goes to the DNA and upregulates all the pro-inflammatory cytokines and the prostaglandin-generating enzymes and just revs up the fire. Uh, they also found that cytokines uh, IL-4, that's interleukin-4, and interleukin-1b were lower among the one beta, were lower among the cigarette users. And what we find is that in people with gum disease, their IL-4 drops and it gets better after they're successfully treated. IL-4 shows that the immune system is being modulated. So e-cigarette users are actively suppressing their anti-inflammatory responses and encouraging their inflammatory responses. And it is not of course, as bad for your lungs if you're using commercial cigarette vaping product that has not been associated with increased lung issues, although cer- certainly some uh, we had quite a lot of uh, weird things going with the homemade vapes that were primarily being used for marijuana. Not really homemade, but mm, artisanal, let's put it that way. Bottom line, folks, vaping's not great either. Use it as a short-term bridge, maybe, to quitting smoking altogether, but you're not necessarily doing yourself, and particularly your mouth, any favors. And if your teeth are deteriorating, you definitely want to lose the vape. So there's a small molecule that's a metabolite produced by bacteria, and this is a study in mice, so we're going to be talking about the mouse gut for most of it. But at the end, da, 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 there's a human study. Uh, these, these metabolites are very small, and they can cross into the vagus nerve and cross into the bloodstream and then get across the blood-brain barrier. And they travel to the brain and lead to increased anxiety in mice. So the story begins a couple of years ago, but this paper was published February 14th in the journal Nature, hot off the presses, in other words. Uh, in the last few years, I've shared with you a number of studies that have linked the microbiome to brain function and mood. There are studies that show that transplanting microbio, uh, microbiota from uh, healthy animals into unhealthy animals actually improves psychological function, indications for depression and anxiety in mice. People with certain neurological conditions are known to have distinctly different gut bacteria communities. This data goes back at least 20 years, and anyone who's at all even peripherally evolved with the autism community has heard uh, exhaustive descriptions of how the microbiome in children with autism uh, is different. People on the spectrum have different bugs, different ratios. And this, the question is, is that feeding the beast, so to speak, when we're talking about a neurodegenerative or a neurodevelopment uh, disorder. So it seems like it can make it worse. It seems like it can make it better. We know that, for example, Prevotella will bloom in the gut and we'll see a flare of rheumatoid arthritis. We know that in when there's a bloom of Klebsiella in the gut, people who have Rider's syndrome and ankylosing spondylitis will experience a flare. 
but that's modulating the immune system. We're talking neurology here. Well, the problem is it's difficult to show causation, even with the studies where you're transplanting gut microbia. Correlation is not the same thing as causation. We have to answer the question, does mood originate in the brain and then go down the vagus nerve and alter gut function in a way that results in an altered microbiome? That's plausible enough. Or do compounds originate in the micro, in the gut, in the, from, from microbiome byproducts, for example, and then find their way into the brain and create these disorders? So they had already identified a bacterial metabolite called uh, 4-ethylphenyl sulfate. We're going to call it 4-EPS for the rest of this discussion. And this is produced by certain bacteria in the intestines. It's absorbed into the bloodstream, circulates throughout the body. And in 2013, this lab showed that this molecule was present in higher levels in mice with altered neurological development. This was a mouse model of autism and and schizophrenia. So these are mice who are specifically engineered, if you will, to develop this disorder, these disorders, so you can try out drugs on them. It's it's nice. It really helps with uh, developing therapies. But this was just a little detail, not particularly useful, but a marker, if you will, for these diseases. Subsequently, in blood samples from 231 individuals looking at both neurotypical children and children on the autism spectrum, they found that 4-EPS levels were 700-fold, that is seven times higher in children on the autism spectrum. That's going to make you sit up and take uh, notice. So they focused on the effects of 4-EPS on mouse models of anxiety. And in humans, of course, Everything's more complicated, particularly the neurology. But anxiety, animal models do provide a way to study uh, anxious behaviors. And in mice, how do you you don't you know take a systems review? What you do in mice is you measure is you watch their behavior. And anxiety is defined as an unwillingness to explore a new space, and instead a tendency to hide or freeze in a new environment. Bold mice will explore a new space, sniff around, look for food, but anxious mice will hide as if there was a predator there instead of exploring. Huddle up in the corner. The study compared two groups of lab mice. One group was colon, same identical types of mice. One group was colonized with a pair of bacteria that were genetically engineered to produce uh, the four EPS and the other group were colonized with identical bacteria, except that they had not been genetically engineered to produce 4-EPS. Then the mice were introduced into a new arena after the microbiome had had time to work, and they measured their behavior. Now, the mice with the 4-EPS in their gut, though that bacteria, spent much less time exploring and more time hiding, uh, Brain scans of the four EPS mice showed that some of the brain regions that are known to be associated with fear and anxiety were more activated, and there were also changes in brain activity, and this is interesting, functional connectivity. So if you can think about when you have a thought or when you have a 
when you make a, initiate and make a motion, there's going to be a lot of sparkles in the brain as, as various neurons trigger other neurons. And there was not as big a spread of connectivity. So more concentrated sparkles in an area without spread. That suggests that the synapses are altered. So looking at the brain cells, what when they looked under a microscope, what they found that was that the oligodendrocytes, there's basically neurons, glial cells, and oligodendrocytes. And the oligodendrocytes were altered. These are very important cells because they produce myelin, a protein that wraps around nerve cells and acts like insulation around an electrical wire. It reduces resistance, and in the case of nerve cells, it drastically speeds up transmission speed. So what they found was if 4-EPS was present, the oligodendrocytes were less mature and produced less myelin. So the insulation around the axons were, was thinner. There was slower processing, slower movement. Uh, it just slowed down thinking. And I'm sure you've noticed when you're anxious, it does feel like it's slowing down your thinking, doesn't it? It's, there's, it, there's something to this. So they, of course, then said, well, all right, we've got these four EPS mice. They're showing their anxious behavior. Let's give them a drug that will increase myelin production in oligodendrocytes. I didn't know there was such a thing, but that's why we read science. Anyway, this drug was able to overpower the negative effects of four EPS, sort of providing the mice got their normal myelin and their anxious behaviors went away. So another study showed up in Nature Medicine around the same time. Uh, one of the other researchers showed that treating mice with an oral drug to soak up and remove 4-EPS from their systems also led to reductions in anxious behavior. So they thought, well, that's interesting. This drug's already uh, this this drug's already approved for research in humans. So they did a small clinical trial where they gave the 4-EPS to uh, people. This was a binder type drug. It it um, kept the 4-EPS from getting into the bloodstream. So you saw reduced levels in the blood and in the urine and presumably in the brain. And many of the 26 study, uh, the 26 study participants displayed decreased levels of anxiety. Now, of course, this was not a blinded study. There was no placebo uh, control. So this could be placebo, but it's intriguing. And it's certainly going to get them the funding to go on and do the, another study where they have the uh, the ability to do a double-blind placebo, which is technically much more difficult. But we don't know exactly how it works. We don't know if it's a direct effect of EPS or whether there's an intermediate step uh, or two or five that are in there. But this concept that giving, if we can show that using, that sequestering this in humans, in the gut, lowers anxiety. This is not something that could ever really become uh, habituated for. The, this is a compound that's having a negative effect on the, on the brain. The absence of this compound does not uh, have a negative effect on the brain. That's already established. So this could be a real game changer. And it also points to the fact that the microbiome and the imprinting or printing of the microbiome uh, these genetic typings that we're doing will eventually allow us it, to either evolve compounds or use heat-killed uh, 
heat-killed microbes as drugs, and maybe even garden the gut in therapeutic ways. This is probably five or ten years away. None of the stuff that the probiotic packages are promising you they're going to do is all that well validated. And I'm always looking to see the next study because this whole idea that I am not an individual, but I'm effectively a planet that is inhabited by bacteria on all of my surfaces, it is, it's fascinating to me. It's, it's sort of like we are all super organisms. We're, we're all planets. And that makes me think of the ending of the first men in black. I'm going to uh, read a few emails now. This one, this first one from David in Santa Cruz. And uh, David wrote, I'm a 70-year-old uh, male. Uh, I am wondering what you think of this idea that general anesthesia can trigger dementia. And he posted an article which was published quite a few years ago, 2014, that uh, he pulled off the internet, and I, when it printed out here, it didn't print out the, the uh, journal it was in, so I don't have a link for anybody. Let me just read you the first paragraph. Uh, Sanfra Anestine had surgery at 42 and couldn't speak for about 12 hours afterward. The next time she was operated on, she was 56, and it took three months for her speech to return. Now, 61... Uh, Anastine says she doesn't have difficulty forming words anymore, but is still more forgetful than before her second surgery. She's afraid of what will happen if she ha- has to undergo anesthesia again. As a functional medicine doctor, hearing about Sanfra, the first thing I'm wondering about is whether she has a lot of mutations in her detoxification pathways, specifically in acetyltransferase. And we hear this all the time. I've heard it from my patients. And there's a fair amount of literature looking at Parkinson's disease showing that general anesthesia is associated with an abrupt worsening of that condition. So let's just take it as read that there may be a neurotoxicity to knocking out nerve function and that maybe the resilience of older, more vulnerable nerves isn't there. Elderly patients often exhibit post-operative cognitive decline, uh, but they usually recover. Those who have poor detoxification may not. Studies on animals, and these are Alzheimer's mice, so remember this is not the real Alzheimer's disease, it's a fake Alzheimer's disease, but they have shown that anesthesia increases the buildup of the um, amyloid beta. And recent researches uh, have been looking at what exactly the mechanism is in this in anesthesia anyway and what they have found is that mostly gas anesthesia works in specific areas involved in sleep and arousal and it knocks out the neural networks that enable communication between brain networks we were talking about anesthesia uh, i mean anxiety and uh, and anxiety behavior That was also based on communication of the neural networks being disrupted. These are inflammatory things, and they're triggered uh, by a chemical cascade that releases uh, immunomicroglia. So it isn't what the anesthesia is itself, but it's what it sets in motion that seems to be the problem. Uh, We mentioned the buildup of toxic amyloid beta, and this is 
really important for us to think about in people who have a strong family history of Alzheimer's or dementia. And there's been a lot of epidemiological evidence showing that there isn't a link. And the problem with these studies is that you're looking for an effect that's not going to be evenly spread across the population. So you won't see a statistically significant result for the for everybody. If the large group will dilute out, but if you take people who reported a problem after anesthesia and did them, I think you probably would see it. And that's the po- that's the problem with how we design our science. Just based on what we want to prove, we can design a study that has a higher probability. Uh, of showing it or not showing it just based on how we ask the question. It's a debate technique. You may have noticed it uh, during uh, political debates. Uh, Either ignore the question or answer a different question than the one that you, uh, then that you were asked. And that's kind of, mm, let's just say it's, it abounds in science. We've got lots of studies showing that after cardiac surgery, you get, post-operative cognitive decline. And some of that may be micro microstrokes, micro-TIAs, but it may also be that cardiac surgery is long. And so people are, it's very, very inflammatory. The longer you have that anesthesia in there, the more inflammatory it is. So scientists are working on ways to screen and identify who may be more susceptible I hope to see I hope to see people looking at for example N-acetyltransferase which is probably one of the big uh, enzymatic reactions that are inherited that could be a factor here and certain uh, certain drugs kind of weird but if you give statins to mice who are uh, who are Alzheimer's mice it protects them from the cognitive decline of the anesthesia, which to me says, yes, that makes sense. Statins are anti-inflammatory, and it lends weight to the fact that it is the inflammatory effect of the injury signals that go along with any surgery that are somehow activating the microglia and leading to the increase in the amyloid beta. So in the meantime, what advice can I give you? Well, spinal spinal, uh, anesthesia. If you can have your knee replacement or hip replacement done with uh, conscious sedation, basically a Valium-like drug and a sp- uh, and spinal anesthesia to knock out the pain sensors, that's the way to go. If you have a family history or you're struggling already with mild cognitive decline, I think that we need to encourage our surgeons uh, and vote with our feet, really. Surgeons really prefer to have the patient completely knocked out. It simplifies things in several ways, but not at the cost of neurons, right? This one is from uh, Lawrence, and uh, Lawrence is in Kent, Washington. And Lawrence wanted uh, writes, Why does the medical field continue to call vitamin D a vitamin when in reality it is a hormone? Perhaps this has been discussed, and I missed it in, in that case. My apologies. Well, I thought I'd revisit it because if... If uh, Lawrence missed it, then probably some other people did. So what's the difference between a vitamin and a hormone? It's pretty substantial. Okay, A vitamin is a chemical substance, usually a small, complex molecule, 
that is a cofactor in biochemical reactions. So take, for example, iron. Iron, you can argue to say, is a cofactor in hemoglobin because it sits there and and is integral to the functioning of hemoglobin. Uh, vitamin B12, folic acid, these are critical to the methylation uh, cycle, critical to the formation of chemicals that go on to become uh, chemical scissors, enzymes, and other products that run the physiology. So with a low level of the vitamin in question, you can't do the thing. So let's talk about thiamine, okay? So if you don't have enough thiamine, you get a a vitamin deficiency disease. And in fact, alcoholics are chronically low in B12. And I think just really quickly, if you're a heavy drinker and you're a closet heavy drinker and you get sick and you show up in the hospital, um, fess up, all right? There's two reasons, one of which is alcohol withdrawal can really, really mess up your medical care if it happens unexpectedly. Secondly, you want a big load of thiamine because a lot of the stuff we're going to do to you, including giving you glucose IV, more than likely, because we're not going to feed you because you're fasting for a surgery, could actually damage your brain if your B12 level, if your B1 levels are low. And also your B12, for that matter. So be sure that you fess up if you are a heavy drinker and you isn't part of your medical record if you end up ill in the hospital. And spouses, you know, this is the, this is the moment not to worry about shame and not to be embarrassed, but to save the brain of your loved one. And also, you know, it's hugely important to be honest at those moments. And I know that tem- the temptation is to stonewall, but don't do it. Back to vitamins. Hormones, right? So now we've got vitamins. They're a cofactor. They're recycled. You need a certain amount of them. If you don't have enough, if you don't have enough, the machine can't run. It, sort of like oil in an engine. Now, the hormones, on the other hand, tend to be much larger. They're often based on a complete, uh, on uh, a a larger molecule like cholesterol. That's all your your steroid hormones, which includes everything from testosterone to estrogen to DHEA to cortisol and to aldosterone, which is important for salt regulation and water regulation in the kidney. So steroid hormones are a chemical signal. They have a receptor on the surface of the cell. They go and they attach to that receptor most of the time. It's through attaching to a receptor. There are exceptions. And that receptor then transfers the information that this hormone is out there sending a signal into the cell. And the cell then goes through a cascade of events, usually resulting in the transcription of new DNA uh, to, to do something, to turn something on or to turn something off. And there's this symphony of hormones going on at all times, signaling and allowing the processes of our body, such as waking up and going to sleep and uh, surviving uh, surviving stress and having a, uh, ovulating and creating sperm. All of these things require the signaling from hormones to get rolling. And vi- to, the reason that vitamin D got misclassified back in the day was because of the Industrial Revolution. I was watching uh, 
the Tim Burton Sweeney Todd movie last night for fun. And the early scenes of industrial London are spot on. They built high. The buildings were close together. They had tons of air pollution, a cloud of smoke over the city, uh, 24-7, 365, not enough ultraviolet radiation getting to the ground, shadowed buildings, kids playing in alleys, didn't get enough sun. They developed a disease called rickets. And rickets was soft bones. One of the jobs of vitamin D is to help the body absorb calcium. Low vitamin D, you don't absorb calcium well, not enough calcium, your bones can't calcify. And so the children's bones would bend, developing a characteristic bow. And this was cured by sending them out to the countryside and letting them get some sun. Later on, vitamin D was added to milk, when synthetic vitamin D was uh, emerged as the result of a industrial process, it was originally a waste product, but turned out ergo calciferol is very handy. The body can turn it into cholecalciferol, which is the one that's naturally made in the body, produced in the skin, transformed by ultraviolet light into a pro uh, into pro vitamin D and then transformed again in the liver and again in the kidney until you finally got the functional form. So, historical reasons primarily, and I think an interesting story. I wonder what other misclassifications I was taught in medical school that uh, would be interesting to, well, I'll be hanging out and paying attention and hopefully reading the scientific literature for another 20 years. I've already had to revise quite a few things. Uh, that original ulcer diet I was taught, for example, and of course the entire microbiome. Uh, maybe we need a little dirt in our food and shouldn't worry about the 10-second rule. Maybe we should abolish the 10-second rule or the five-second rule or whichever rule you're using for stuff you drop on the ground. Okay, so this was another um, email from Tim in Nebraska and a couple of links to a uh, couple of websites that are essentially, it's, an, it's interesting to read these things because the, there's like a, a grain of truth and then there's this chain of logical statements that get more and more wrong but it feels like a logical progression. And this is one uh, that was in, uh, that I just had to read to you. The CDC says the average adult gets a cold two to three times a year. If we tested everyone for colds and counted every death within 30 days of a positive cold test as a cold death, then we'd have about 600,000 cold deaths per year. And sh then they, they go on and uh, show the math, the average colds per year, this so there's 30 days after a cold that deaths count. So that means there's 75 days per year uh, with cold that could count as a death. And that means 21% of days that you might die uh, for any reason, you, you would be counted as a cold death. And then they come up with about 600,000 cold deaths per year. So this is spurious and absurd and based on a false premise. And so I thought I'd just kind of talk about some of the fake memes that I've been seeing over and over again and just, you know, just say they're not right and say why. So one I've been hearing a lot, hospitals make money 
caring for COVID patients. So they have an incentive to pad the number of diagnoses so that they can get more money for the government. In fact, it's being it's been called a bounty for COVID deaths, as if this was we were awarding the hospitals. Actually, it is true that people get a extra money from the federal government, primarily through the through the Medicare budget for a patients with a COVID diagnosis. That amount of money is about $3,000 per case. Now, let me stop you. First of all, hospitals working with Medicare are not, they're not treated as a hotel. They're not paid by the day. They're paid by the diagnosis and by the amount of comorbidity. And the increase in the cost of per patient day of caring for a patient with COVID, it's very, very expensive. And we're, we're not even talking about people who end up in the ICU, where we're, it, you know, it's about $3,000, you know, a shift for the baseline cost of an ICU bed. So the, the extra, you know, the extra eight hours worth of reimbursement isn't coming anywhere close when people stay in the ICU for eight, you know, eight to 21 days. It's, you've got, Pro, you've got lots of PPE, you have special cleaning, you have a nursing ratio. And by the way, nursing costs are through the roof right now. Hospitals are engaging in a bidding war to try and get trained RNs to staff their, fa- their facilities. And when you walk around hospitals, they seem empty because they can't use their rooms without, without mandated safety staffing ratios, and they can't get the staff. As a result, emergency rooms are filling up. And people aren't getting care they need. So uh, that 3000 let's triple it. Let's quadruple it. The hospitals need as much extra funds as they can get to just keep the functionality going. Uh, another comment. COVID deaths are exaggerated. If a person spends a week, you know, this is, if, this is not true, that these deaths are exaggerated. If a person spends a week in the ICU with low oxygen and hypercoagulability, and they're their blood wants to clot, and they get a fatal heart attack, that's a death due to COVID. If a, and it gets counted as such. If a person with COVID dies of a ruptured appendix, that's not counted as a COVID death. The, to say that people who die within 30 days of a COVID diagnosis are counted as dying of COVID, uh, and therefore the number of deaths is exaggerated, is just plain wrong. People who die of a known complication of COVID, cardiopulmonary collapse, massive blood clot to the brain, or massive blood clot to the lung, are counted as dying from COVID in the same way that a person who dies of a hemorrhage caused by a cancer metastasis eating into a blood vessel is considered to have died from the cancer as the cause and not the hemorrhage. The hemorrhage being the cause of the hemorrhage is cancer, therefore the cause of the death is cancer. You know, we feel we know how to fill in death certificates and we're not padding the numbers. I I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about alternative sources of protein and I had mentioned grasshoppers and other insects. Uh, earthworms have long been used as a form of nutrition, but what really got me going on this was some of the medical uses that are emerging for earthworms. So, First of all, they have a lot of amino acids, a lot of important vitamins, lots of iron, lots of calcium. And in the Amazons, uh, the native peoples use uh, 
bugs as their primary source of protein and vitamins. So if you go and look at traditional medicine, there are lots of uses of worms, earthworms in particular, in uh, traditional medicine. And besides nutrition, they an earthworm paste was studied, and it is anti-inflammatory. It reduces reactive oxygen species. It has he, he, it it lowers blood levels of the uh, the cytokines that are pro-inflammatory, and lumbrokinase, which is an organic compound that is derived from earthworms. You may have even seen that at the health food store. It uh, reduces inflammation and it reduces hypercoagulation. So it lowers fibrinogen levels in cancer patients. That lowers, that slows the growth of tumors, leads to less metastasis. It dissolves blood clots and helps protect against heart disease and stroke. It dissolves bacterial biofilms. So that can protect your teeth as well as your, uh, as well as your microbiome. If you, if you get rid of bad biofilms and put in good bacteria, you tend to replace the bad biofilms, which are uh, pro-inflammatory, with good biofilms. It also has uh, antiplatelet effects. And there are interesting nervous system properties to earthworm. Uh, Lumbricus, which is a widely known earthworm in Chinese medicine, and uh, by the way, that we'll talk about that at the end, uh, has been shown to increase nerve cell regeneration and it affects signaling in Schwann cells, promoting nerve regeneration. So you can actually help nerves that have been damaged heal by using, you know, Geelong, which is powdered earthworms. And so I went looking for Geelong and essentially in the Chinese medicine, it, they have this sense that it is salty and cold. It's good against heat, which makes which is their word for inflammation. And it's also used for spasms. And you can buy this as a powder. One to two grams daily are recommended for oral use. Or you can just dig up some, er, um, some earthworms and uh, smash them and pour hot water over them and drink the water. A lot of people... Find, think they taste salty, so using using the powder in a capsule is probably a better thing to do. Do not not for use in pregnancy or lactation, probably because of the anticoagulation effects leading to an increased risk of hemorrhage. Which, of course, when you start seeing precautions listed like that, it means you're dealing with a biologically uh, active agent, and it's just kind of fun to think about uh, about that. We started off the program talking about anxiety, and one of the aspects of anxiety that we're all familiar with is social withdrawal. Well, virtual reality might make it easier to get therapy. New research shows that many people are actually more comfortable speaking to an avatar than a real person. So the way 30% of people actually prefer to talk about negative experiences with uh, with an avatar. And uh, what they researchers did was they put a haptic suit on someone. They used, fa- uh, I guess, fa- full face and body motion capture. So similar to what they do in the movies 
when they film someone against a, uh, a green screen and then turn them into a, uh, a cartoon character, they um, sat down and smiled and said, tell me about yourself and analyzed how people interacted with avatars compared to interacting with other people. And they rated their experience on enjoyment, perceived understanding, comfort, awkwardness, and the extent that they felt they disclosed information about themselves. And 30% of the people preferred disclosing negative experiences being VR. That's about a third, you know. So that might mean that virtual therapy would be something that people who don't feel comfortable with face-to-face interactions uh, would be, be willing to do. And as I think about the social isolation that COVID has caused, and particularly the withdrawal that we're seeing in effectively almost a, a, a large segment of the current young people are socially withdrawn. And I'm wondering if maybe preferentially offering a person who has social anxiety a, a therapist who's a real-time therapist. This is not a fake robot platform like the ones you hear advertised that are essentially you know, AI asking questions that are just sort of part of a response set to questions, the Turing, you know, basically a good Turing machine. Instead, what we're talking about is a real person with a real brain who's able to make, draw real conclusions and offer more advanced guidance sitting there in a, effectively a mask that makes them less threatening and more attractive uh, and perhaps more neutral. You don't know the race or the sex, potentially, of the person you're talking to. And certainly, you're not distracted by uh, their resemblance to your uncle who was abusive, right? So, I, I'm fascinated by this, and it'll be very, very interested, interesting to see where it goes. So let's talk about glutathione as one of our last article, uh, our last uh, articles of this program. There are really very few proteins in the body that make that have a change that makes them unique compared to the corresponding proteins that exist in Neanderthals and apes. But researchers at Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany and the Karolinska Institute in Sweden have now studied one such protein, glutathione reductase, which regenerates glutathione and protects against oxidative stress. Glutathione is key for breaking down, for getting rid of heavy metals. It's key for getting rid of alcohol. It is key for getting rid of acetaminophen. And if you can't use glutathione or you don't have enough of it, you're not able to detoxify these from these incurrent things. Glutathione is also critical to protecting the mitochondria, which is why Tylenol overdose destroys the liver, is that the, uh, the glutathione gets used up. It can't stop the oxidative stress that's caused by the toxic intermediate, and you fry your liver. So what they showed is that if you've got the Neanderthal variant of glutathione reductase, you have a much higher risk for inflammatory bowel disease and car- and all cardiovascular disease. There, there are about 100 uh, proteins that are different from 
the Neanderthals, from the from us and the Neanderthals. I'm including myself in a Homo sapien group there, uh, and the Neanderthal protein actually made more reactive uh, oxygen. Uh, rea- it allowed for more reactive oxygen species. We don't know that they got more cancer. Probably they didn't live long enough and they didn't have the levels of environmental pollution challenging them. Uh, But what we find is that stopping oxidative stress is potentially so important that it's continued to have an evolutionary benefit, even as recently as, well, we think that the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens diverged about 500,000 years ago in terms of the paleo uh, paleoarchaeology but i or i don't know what you'd call it i guess paleogenetics or i guess maybe they even they probably have a name for that field but i can't summon it up well that's about all for this week's podcast Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.